Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Let Safeway help you unleash your globe with your favorite personal care products. Right now at Safeway, get great deals on all your favorite personal care products, like Head & Shoulders Base Shampoo, Crest 3D Whitening Toothpaste, Listerine Antiseptic Mouthwash, Sensodyne Sensitivity Fresh Toothpaste, Degree Women Antiperspirant Deodorant, or Soft Soap Liquid Hand Soap. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local Safeway store for more deals and specific details. Nice. G'day and welcome to Not A Knife. The podcast is all about culture, unity, reviews and banter. It's proudly part of the Ozcast Network where you can find other great shows like the Yeager Day podcast, Hong Kong Confidential and the Apple Slice podcast. This podcast is proudly recorded on the lands of the Wajuk people of Perth region and I pay respects to their elders both past and present. On this episode, I chat with Thor Newwriter, who is the director of the documentary Disaster Capitalism, which is screening at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival on July 7th at 3.15pm. The link is in the show notes for where you can buy a ticket and basically find out a little bit more about this film. Or alternatively, just stick around and listen to this interview. It's really, really fascinating. Not only talk about the actual film itself, which is about how capitalism has weaved its way into uh, disasters around the world, in particular in, uh, uh, you know, war-torn countries or um, in in countries that have been hit by earthquakes or, or landslides and things like that, how capitalism weaves its way in there. It's really, really frightening and, and terrifying stuff. But on top of that, Thor is also a teacher and he teaches students how to make documentary films so i talked to him about that uh the beginning of the interview unfortunately there was a little bit of a glitch with skype and it didn't record my side of the interview so i've just got his side but then i pop in a little bit later on unfortunately you have to listen to my voice again uh, but basically i find this really really interesting this this whole this whole interview is fascinating i learned a lot about documentary filmmaking and i learned a lot about the different styles of documentary filmmaking and also what goes into creating a documentary film. And most importantly as well, I get to touch on one of my favorite documentary films, which is Control Room, which I think is a fantastic film. And, and fortunately enough, I've not really discussed it with anybody before. And uh, the stuff that I learned from Thor about it at the end is uh, really great. And I, I was chuffed to uh, be able to talk about that. Anyhow, let's listen to the trailer and we'll be back with the interview. When disaster strikes, countries are thrown into disarray. Into this gap, aid flows. The world believes aid is used to rebuild the lives of those most in need. But is this the truth? My name is Anthony Lowenstein, and I'm an independent journalist and author. For more on this and where it may well lead, let's speak with Anthony Lowenstein. But we shouldn't forget one very important point. One... Talking earlier about the uh, the international fallout from what's happened in the UK. These issues didn't suddenly become serious when Trump became president. He's going to make things a lot worse. He's going to make disaster capitalism on steroids. 
but ultimately these issues have been around for 30, 40 years. I've spent the last decade listening to frustrated voices around the world. They are hell-bent on destroying the Haitian state and turning us into a collectivity of beggars. I've seen people and corporations making money from misery. We have a lot of great people working for our government, but we've given them a box of broken tools. A disaster capitalism takes over. But what happens when the profit motive enters the aid equation? When aid and politics meets business, who really gains from the multi-billion dollar industry? My journey takes me across the globe and through a murky world inhabited by governments, non-government organisations and secretive businesses. In Afghanistan, Haiti and Papua New Guinea, the story of disaster capitalism unfolds. I have a, my positions uh, um, has a lot of definitions to it. Uh, my primary responsibility is the director of video journalism. So, um, you know, whatever needs to be taken care of in that realm is falls under my umbrella. But um, another big part of that is we have what's called digital skills immersion, which is for all incoming students um, and giving them the fundamentals of how to use video photography and uh, radio as a reporting tool. Um, so they all have at least foundational sort of um, jumping off point to where they get into the rest of their academic year. Um, so we just, we just have part-timers start. Um, we have a two-year part-time program. So I'm, I'm managing that uh, right now and I'm preparing for our full-time students, which is in August. So we have about 200, 215 students who will come in and do the program all at the same time. So it's a really intense month. Um, and then the pride and joy of what I do here is I teach the documentary program with a faculty member named June Cross who created it about 10 years ago. Um, and they, they're actually here for an ad additional semester, which is right now during the summer. Um, and they complete their films. So they're in full production and post-production mode right now. So um, just working with them, making sure that, you know, they're staying focused and helping them troubleshoot and basically being an executive producer to their films, um, taking care of their needs. And then I have this little thing, which is the film. Um, <laughs> so anyways, not to bore you too much, but that's that's part of uh, the, the juggling. And then, you know, then there's other sort of administrative stuff at the school. Um, like we have this thing tomorrow, which is called an assessment. And we look at the work from the students who just graduated in mid-May, uh, just sort of assess how the program's doing. You know, part of that is a, a self-evolution, but passing that on to, you know, really really challenge the students to get beyond sort of like, oh, this is an interesting person, but like, okay, that's great. So what's the film going to be about? So why are people going to want to watch this and fund it? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot more out there in terms of resources and opportunities, but there's also a lot more filmmakers. Um, so it sort of goes hand in hand. And, um, and I think it's great. Something else that you said is, you know, new voices coming up. Um, and I just think that the affordability and size of equipment has really democratized the industry. Um, and I think we're, we're starting to see that, um, you know, new film festivals popping up because of it and everything. Um, 
Yeah, it's a, you know, as everyone keeps saying, it's the golden age for documentary filmmaking. And uh, it's, it's definitely interesting. It's a great time to be, be part of it. I, I've been doing, I've been working in the industry for almost 20 years now. Um, and the way that I got into it was, um, you know, as a 17 year old, I, I, I somehow decided I was going to go to uh, a certain university and, and they had a, a basically a broadcast television program. And that's what I studied in. Um, I realized it's not really what I wanted to do. And I thought I wanted to do fictional films, graduated. I worked on a couple sets, didn't really like it. So I always had it in the back of my mind, uh, about documentaries. So, um, some things happened. I, I, you know, I used to bartend and I met some people who mentioned, um, the American filmmaker, Ken Burns, who, you know, he makes, he's made a lot of films and they're very long. He does series. He did one on the war. Um, so I, you know, and he lives in New Hampshire. So I was, uh, I just reached out to the production company on a whim and, you know, two months later I moved up there and I started interning and, um, it was a, a 10 part series on jazz um and it was the first film i worked on and we cut it on 16 millimeter film on steambacks and as soon as i walked into this you know old new england house that just has bins with film hanging on it all over the place and steambacks and a large post-production crew uh, i instantly fell in love and and that's what i've been doing ever since he he's nailed his style that that is absolutely true you know and he he makes other films that are that are much more verite and more poetic. Um, but there's kind of like his small passion films that no one really knows about, but yeah, his historical documentaries are just, you know, it's the Ken Burns style and you either get it and you can stay there for a long time or you don't and you hate it. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was grad school. I mean, working with amazing filmmakers, I worked with some amazing editors and just pouring over their work. Cause that's what an assistant does. Um, and so slowly, because it's, you know, it's analog, it's on film, uh, I, I learned a tremendous amount. You know, I, I transitioned a lot. I, I went from the historical uh, Ken Burns style, then I worked at HBO, and I just did some, um, I worked on sports documentaries, uh, and they were looking at how sports and society uh, help form one another, and they were very much focused on um, race and socioeconomics. Um, but I did that for a few years and I just knew the historical form wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, and I definitely wanted to get more contemporary uh, and politically focused. So I started working with uh, filmmakers that were making um, films for the, T the U.S. series called Frontline on PBS. Um, and that's where I really, I was like, yeah, this is the type of stuff that I do want to do. I don't just enjoy watching it. I love the, the deep thinking that goes into telling political stories um and i did that for a while and then you know one day i realized that like wow i'm i'm still sort of you know as i moved across forms formats or, or um genres that uh i was sort of staying parallel in in my responsibilities so um i decided that you know i needed to just take the plunge and, and start working trying to work on my own films and this was right around the time when, when uh, a filmmaker, um, you know, you could, you, you had more opportunities to do more than one job. Um, before that time, like you were either a producer or you were an editor or you were uh, a DP and that's it. Um, and this is, you know, the era of like predators when that name came out. So um, I was able to take my undergraduate background of, you know, having a little bit of technical skills on lots of levels. 
um, and started applying that. And I just worked on, you know, I worked at production boutiques and we would do everything from commercials to long form documentaries and uh, really sharpened my technical skills. Um, but um, then I ended up uh, going to grad school in my mid thirties, um, actually here at Columbia. Um, they had this mid career program where um, I focused on covering uh, politics and government. And that's where I guess I started to shape my voice. Um, I had worked on some films afterwards, after graduating, um, much in the frontline vein for, for Al Jazeera English. Um, but the, the project that I did while I was a student here was the, was the, the seed of disaster capitalism. Um, and I was looking at mining in Afghanistan. Um, so that's, this film has been, <laughs> take, it took a while. I've basically been working on it for eight years. Um, so it's changed a lot. I've changed a lot. The industry's changed a lot. What people want to see has changed a lot in that time. My experience, so my experiences are, uh, from an independent filmmaker's perspective. Um, you know, I never worked for the channel, uh, but I worked on, so they have a, they have a, um, current affairs, political current affairs program, which is called People in Power. Uh, I worked exclusively on People in Power films and they're 30 minute, you know, documentaries, correspondent driven. Um, the, there is, there's definitely is a stigma. I think there's probably less of one today because it's just doesn't have the, um, the reach in the United States since Al Jazeera America folded. Um, but yes, the name and the logo, um, uh, was definitely not something that helped, um, its reach, uh, had a very difficult time getting onto cable, um, cable providers. Um, so, but working for it is really great. There's a lot of freedom. Um, you know, there's always, you know, the bureaucracy of getting a, um, a film greenlit. Um, but once it is, you know, there's a lot of trust uh, in the filmmaker and in their vision to to go out and make the film um, that they pitched. Uh, there's and uh, which is great. Um, it's almost it does feel a lot like being an independent filmmaker. You just know you're basically commissioned uh, for your half hour. Sometimes they have a little bit of an idea. I I have a relationship. Uh, the person I worked with was is is the senior producer for the Americas. Uh, so he oversees North and South America. So that's, that's quite a bit, you know, two hemispheres, um, three continents, two continents. Um, and, um, you know, he, he's great to work with, um, because he's really, really good with story. Um, he, he's, uh, of a generation that, that, um, sort of the golden age of television documentaries, I guess you would say, or news documentaries. So he has that. You know, it's almost like the BBC mentality, which I know Al Jazeera is basically started by former BBC people, uh, you know, 15 years ago or so. Um, so it, it is a very, you know, um, great in that the story really matters um, and you figure out how to do it. Um, that's one thing I really enjoyed. Um, and, you know, there's a bit of a rush because, you know, a shorter film, you have a shorter production schedule. It, uh, it can be you know, um, a quick turnaround. And I, I like that as well. Um, you know, get in, get out, get it done and, uh, move on to the next thing. So this opened up an aspect of the world, which I was not familiar with and it's right out in the open and really it should be something that is so obvious, but 
I think that's what the great thing is about good documentaries is that they go, you know what, this is something you don't know about and you're going to learn about it. And I was really fascinated to see, you know, what you uh, really uncovered in this particular documentary. It's really interesting. Um, so I'm curious about how you got to that point, like how you discovered this particular story. Yeah, um, that is, I mean, I think... Thank you very much for saying that. Um, uh, I agree with you. I think that's what what the form really should do um, is is to try and introduce um, people to different stories, parts of the world, lifestyles, communities, um, and so the you know as I said, I started by looking. I, I wanted to know. So my jumping off point uh, is I wanted to know how U.S. foreign policy affects people in other countries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what led me to Afghanistan. That was in 2010, so it was the height of the troop surge. And I wasn't interested. I mean, our military actions, that's the, the most blunt instrument we have in foreign policy. And But I wasn't really interested in uh, ducking bullets and, and, you know, that whole adrenaline sort of type of reporting. But at that same time, we were doing what was called the civilian surge, which never really got much play because it was really disastrous and in, in its uh in achieving its goals so that's where i started i, I came across this um you know the mining article about a trillion dollars going to turn the economy of afghanistan around and all of that so i was like okay that just that just piqued my interest so i i dove into that um and worked on it for uh, you know a year or two basically mm-hmm. and that's uh and then i got introduced to anthony um through a fellow Australian journalist um, that I knew, and he was going to Afghanistan. He was working on this book, Prophets of Doom, um, and we just started chatting. And he he was shooting along the way. He, he the book took place in like seven different countries, including Australia, uh, in Europe, and uh, we just got talking. He sent me his footage. I looked at it. Um, I was like, okay, there's something here we can work with. Um, and then at some point he's like, look, I'm coming to the States, uh, in September and I'm going to go to Haiti, uh, to cover the earthquake response. And we, uh, at that point we were kind of like, yeah, let's do this. Let's try and make a film. Mm. So, uh, it started off really specific for me. And then when Anthony and I started working, it just opened my eyes, like, like you're saying, to like, oh, wow, there's a different thing to look at here. It's not just U.S. foreign policy, but there's this really big thing to look at, which is uh, what I guess I was sort of hinting at to myself of, of um, you know, what does our foreign policy actually do and how does it affect people? It's like, oh, well, we're doing things like re-engineering uh, the, you know, internal affairs of countries. We are we're setting their economic agenda. And that's how we started to focus in on um, the film that we actually made. It took us a while. Um, you know, a place like Haiti is, especially at that time, which was 2012, Yeah, uh, it was still quite close to the earthquake, the first trip we went. Um, it's something I say to my students, It's in, and it's something that I learned uh, the painful way, which is we went down and we tried to shoot everything and we shot nothing. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing, because there's so much there. There's so much story, uh, tragic story, but also a rich story. Um, so 
I think it was a real eye-opening experience for us, not just in the filmmaking experience, but actually, like, what is this world that we're looking at? Uh, and it took us a little bit of trial and error to, to sort of hone in on uh, basically looking at uh, neoliberal ideology and, and how it is very one-sided in its approach to, mm. to you know, globalization and, and helping the world sort of become um, globally united. So in that mind, when you're saying you're going down to Haiti and there's so much story, there's so much to, to capture that you almost end up capturing nothing, how do you plan yeah. then, you know, going back there, how do you plan to, you know, get the, the story that you need to get? Right. Because um, obviously part of a documentary is that you, uh, you know, some of it's quite spontaneous along the way. But yeah. how, do you, how do you plan for that, I guess, is the best way of putting it. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I say we didn't, you know, shoot everything and didn't shoot anything, um, it's not 100% true. Like, yeah. there's very core core uh, aspects of the film that were shot on that first trip, um, which coincidentally, Anthony and I went to Haiti three days after we met physically for the first time. Right. So, so it was a bit of a leap of faith, and it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so... Um, you know the. I, I think part of what, um, you know, there's there are story is story. There is good story, uh, and there's bad story uh, when you talk about form. Um, and I think that the way we approached Haiti, I think we we approached it a little bit like a film and a little bit like a long form print piece, as opposed to concentrating on uh, a documentary film and what's going to work visually. So visual storytelling. Um, you know, there's this, you know, we, I think we got really hung up on, there's this whole ideology sort of like Republic of NGOs and NGOs just flooded and destroyed everything. Well, that's hard to tell visually mm. um, because you would just be talking to people. Really great for a print piece. Um, so then I, I think the the USAID angle, that, that flushed itself out, um, I think, on the first trip. And we knew we had that for the most part, but we didn't have... How does it affect people? Um, and I think just through working with the material in the edit room um, and seeing what didn't work and where the holes were, uh, I think we... And we also kind of wanted to focus on peasant agriculture. Again, a very hard thing to do uh, visually unless you're just there for a very long time, which mm -hmm. we didn't have that luxury. So that's when we, you know... Um, we really looked at it and we're like, okay, well, this, the, the best way to talk about how this affects people is um, they have, they're sort of forced into working these low-wage jobs that aren't a living wage, and there's no housing. So yeah. it's, it's all about housing. Um, and so that's how I, I think we just, you know, you analyze and look at what the story is that you have and what's missing to help tell the story. Um, and then, you know, you have all the other things you have to deal with of, fundraising and how long can you be there and um you know your partner lives on the other side of the world <laughs> but, <laughs> so but there, is uh, that not it, um like part of the freeing nature of of the modern way of filmmaking though in the sense that you know they are on the other side of the world but thanks to the internet and yeah. all that kind of stuff it becomes a little bit easier in some ways uh indeed there there are aspects to that which are um yeah i mean 10 years ago you couldn't do what we did 
um, and I started working. You know, we started working together six years ago. Um, but the, the where it is challenging is that when we initially set out to make this film, Anthony was not in it. Right. Um, that evolved over time too. We 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 didn't want to do that, but we we knew we had to at some point, um, probably in year two of production. So we went, went back to so Anthony had to go to Haiti so that we could shoot him there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's that's part of the challenge um, of of us being separated. Um, but like in Papua New Guinea, uh, we were able to do that at half the cost, which was very, very important um, as an independent filmmaker. Yeah. Because um, I didn't go. Uh, we have this uh, great colleague named Spencer who's based in Sydney. Um, so he went with Anthony and they shot Papua New Guinea because uh, it would have cost twice as much for me to fly there. It's, it's really crazy to think about that. But um, just... So they did a they did a great job, and then Spencer came with us to Afghanistan. So we had you know our, our biggest crew on that shoot, um, and collaborating is so much better than working alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I imagine it would be because you've got you know especially when you're dealing with the subject like what you're dealing with in in this film, you know you need people to bounce ideas off, and especially when it's so complex as well. Yeah. And having a mind like Anthony has got to be really, really helpful to be like, yeah. all right, how do we how do we tackle this next subject? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed, he's um, you know he he's thought about this subject a lot more than I have because he got I think um, a few years uh, head start than yeah. I did, <laughs> and you know he also wrote you know he he went to several countries covering this and then you know he did a re-release of of um, prophets of doom which is uh, you know the same title as the film disaster capitalism which was then released in uh, north america in europe uh and he did additional reporting he did reporting in the united states and he, he got you know one of his things was um the the um capitalization of prison you know imprisoning people prison uh complexes and the um private the private end of that whether it's you know prisons run in australia that are owned by british companies or you know detention centers here in the u.s so he has really thought about um this on a grander scale so it it was wonderful working with him um and being able to focus a little bit more on how do we narrow it down for a film uh which had a lot of challenges uh and then having someone like spencer uh, when we shot in Afghanistan, it's like Spencer. I want you to just you know focus on um, you know um, sort of being the um, you know a cam mm-hmm. when we're shooting with one camera. So then I it freed me up to produce and direct, uh, which you know in Haiti I was shooting with two cameras. It was just Anthony, myself, and two cameras. Um, so you're wearing like you know three hats at that point. Yeah, uh, makes directing and producing a little bit more challenging. <laughs> um, so yeah, collaborating and, and something like this too. Yeah, it's, and, and those conditions were all really harsh conditions, and not necessarily for safety issues. It's hot. It's windy. Um, the landscapes. I mean, Papua New Guinea. I was not there, but you know, it was extremely hot. I mean, you probably can guess what the, yeah. the tropical weather is like there. Yeah. And um, you know, Haiti and Afghanistan. You know, it's very barren in both places. Uh, so it's just it's really difficult. Um, and then, um, and then obviously the language as well, language differences too. Yeah. So, which mm-hmm. I find really interesting. There's that, that part when you're going to, 
to talk to the the people. Uh, I can't remember exactly um, what position it was, but you know the the people in in power in politics and just trying to find out what their plan is going forward and stuff like that and the difficulties that you have going forward and trying to navigate and make sure you get somebody to actually talk to and then really the door is shut in your face and yeah and that says so much <laughs> it's yeah it, it, it was a interesting time in, in afghanistan for sure um so the first time i went to afghanistan i went alone and uh it was during the karzai administration and i got I didn't get. I, I did not land an interview with with uh, President Karzai, but I got access to everybody. I had the finance minister, I had the minister of mines, I had the head of the Afghan Geological Society, I had the deputy minister of mines. They um, they were just very open and welcoming to me, which was amazing. Um, but when we went back for the second trip, uh, and it's the Ghani administration. Um, there was so much infighting going on. Um, it's sort of like the no one was in charge and no one wanted to talk. Mm. Um, and I had, and you know, this is sort of in his wheelhouse. You know, he's about fixing failed states. That's what he did uh, outside of you know his time working at. I can't remember if he worked for the IMF or WTO, but I think it was the IMF. So this is something that he should talk about and wanted to talk about. I thought. Um, but his minders just, you know, they sort of strung us along and, yeah. until the very end, and then everyone's conveniently gone. So um, that that is one of those, as you referred to earlier, one of those um, on-the-fly moments to where you can't plan it, and it was very frustrating. It was at the end, and I just said, Spencer, follow Anthony and don't turn off the camera. Here's my <laughs> phone. Is running the voice recorder is running. Just Anthony, hold this and make sure that whoever's talking, uh, we get their voice. So um, it worked out. Uh, it did what it. I think the best thing that we could get out of it, which was to show, um, you know, sort of the the lack of wanting to just even discuss it. It's yeah. not like we wanted to, you know, put anybody on the spot and say you're corrupt and doing bad things because we didn't have that information. But we wanted to know what the plan was. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the question which I I always ponder about these kinds of stories as well is that how to stay apolitical um, and not take a side. Do you think that it's necessary for documentary filmmakers to uh, you know, try and stay neutral or is it important to try and show it from a perspective that they really feel important? Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's what journalism is struggling with right now. Um, I think documentary, as it's becoming um, a bigger and more inclusive uh, niche of, of uh, journalism, well, I, I'm, I shouldn't even say that, because there's a lot of documentary that's not journalism. Um, you know, it's much more from the film school than from the journalism school. Mm-hmm. Um, so... That conversation has been going on for a while. My perspective on what I want to do, I think, um, well, first of all, you can't get rid of your bias. Uh, I think you have to sort of accept it uh, internally and figure out how you can report against it, um, which is, you know, that's just that's just something that you have to be conscious of and work on. Um, but follow the facts. The facts will not lead you astray. Um, and, you know, we're in a day and age where different people have different facts, apparently. 
Um, so that I think that becomes a little bit more challenging. Um, but I think, you know, there's plenty of film filmmakers out there who, you know, their whole thing is their opinion. Look at Michael Moore. Yeah. Um, you know, Werner Herzog, like he totally embraces that. He, he just goes sort of like even a little bit more off of the, you know, far out end and the experimental end, which is great. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that there's really an answer for that. But for me personally, I think that you have to just trust the facts. You have to work really hard to be knowledgeable uh, about the issue that you're talking about. Um, and if you don't, then find the smart people who know this stuff and talk to them. Uh, read their really long, you know, white papers and and um, just be able to have uh, a conversation. Now, yeah. I will say, working with Anthony, Anthony, he would probably have a different answer to this. I, I think Anthony's journalism is a little bit more rooted in um, in sort of um, I want to say an activist, but I, he has a, a perspective that he embraces and uses. Uh, in his journalism, um, I think that's also part of what makes him, uh, you know, ha- has given him the success that he has. Um, so he and I working together as two journalists with a little bit of a different approach, I think, worked for the film. Um, and you know, politically, I don't think that we're that much different, differently aligned. But I think uh, when it comes to the form, I think he gave me the space to to take the film in directions that I wanted to, and I gave him the space. I mean, he's in the film, so he's a driving force of the conversation. Um, but I think that we we worked that out just sort of organically uh, mm. during the process. Yeah. So for you, as somebody who's guiding uh, new voices as well, like what's a, mm. what do you teach them about the era of fake news and stuff like that? And this new realm of politics Um, because I mean documentary filmmaking is pretty uh, it is really skewed in politics in a lot of ways Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah I'm curious about how you guide them and uh, it's probably the same answer but nonetheless I'm really curious yeah yeah, no, I think it's it is somewhat of the same answer. You know, not long ago, you you could just say, you know, follow the facts and let them be your guide, and that's it. But now, I think there's a little there's a little bit more added to it, which is, um, you have to, I, I think, in a way, protect yourself, and and I don't mean physically, but you, I think you have to. Um, it's you know, we we we're high on what we call verification. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if your mom says she loves you, then, you know, find two sources or three sources to verify it sort of thing. But I think in today's day and age, when your journalism can come under attack, especially if you're doing a, a, a critical look at an issue, um, you really have to have your stuff together. Um, you really have to know what you're doing. And, um, you know, if you're going to be traveling to some place that's unsafe, then there's a physical part to a physical safety issue, but I think uh, as a as an educator, we we just drive it. Uh, I think from day one when they're doing reporting of, of like how to do good reporting, how to verify, and then as uh, the students are with me for a longer period of time making their films, like we always go back to it. It's like who are your experts? Who are the experts that you're talking to? Um, you know, where where is sort of your source material on this subject? Um, and, you know, you have to be able to answer those questions um, from whoever your superior is. Here it's kind of us, like we're sort of their EPs. 
they have to be able to answer that to us. They have to be able to answer uh, any sort of question or have a conversation with whoever their characters are. Um, and then when you're done, you have to be able to talk about it in a, an intelligent way and and uh, really know your your ins and outs of of that topic. Yeah. Um, so that's like John Sopko, who's in the film. He's somebody I found while working on it. I think Anthony also, you know, because we were going that way. We were going trying to go as deep as we can and find out people who were um, analyzing and experts. Like, and, and it seems like an obvious thing to me now. So, like, of course, I would go to the Special Inspector General of Afghanistan Reconstruction. But how often? I mean, how often do you? Um, come across uh, inspector generals in, in government. Well, exactly. Like I yeah. don't know any other ones. Like, but I don't know. Somehow I came across him, yeah. um, and he turned out to be a great character. Yeah, I to think. Me yeah, no, he definitely is. And yeah. I, I think the thing is, is that you know, there are having watched a lot of these kinds of films, um, there are positions which I had no idea existed, and they feel like they've just been conjured out of out of nothing. So. You know, you're saying that how often would you go and see somebody like that? And But then also the question is, I guess, uh, you know, how often would you be aware that somebody like that exists? And that's where the investigation comes into it. Yeah. 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 Um, so now at the end of this long journey, how do you feel about the film? Are you happy with it? And uh, how's it been taking it around and, and the response that people have uh, had from, from watching it? Um, I, I, I am happy with it. Um, it, you know, when you work on something for so long at, at, at a point, you're just, you know, it's like, okay, you've grown up now. You need to get out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> so there is definitely a little bit of that, but it's, it's not, you know, with any malice. It's just, you know, I, want to, I want to work on other, uh, stories. Um, and I'm, I'm the type of person that, that can't really take on two, things at the same time that are this um i think demanding yeah um so uh, there's there's a little bit i mean there's a lot of excitement and happiness um fulfillment uh about getting the film completed um there's a little bit of relief because i now know i can you know i'm still going through this process of, of of getting the film seen and um but i can start sort of shifting my mental focus to another project um the reception has been good. We, you know, we have a sales agent who's still trying to um, make some television sales. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the decisions we made was to make a television hour. Um, at one point, you know, we had like a seventy-five minute cut, which I liked. You know, the director's cut, I guess you could say. Um, but we knew that would be a hard sell, um, and and our you know, main focus is we want people to see it. Um, and festivals are great, um, but it has a sort of limited reach. You know, mm. Do you live near the festival? I don't. There's I, 200, <laughs> like, I mean, like, to one. And, you know, there's 250 films at the festival. So, like, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, pro, you're like, you know, um, a lot of competition for those films, uh, for those eyes. Uh, but we're, we're also, we've had a, um, you know, since March, we've been, We've been doing uh, what we call impact screenings, um, and they've gone really well. Um, we've had them, um, you know, all over the globe. Uh, quite a few in Australia, uh, Pakistan. Um, we've had a few in the UK. We've had a few here. Um, we're looking at maybe doing uh, a couple of other countries that wouldn't normally get this sort of type, this sort of film. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which I guess I can't really say what they are yet. Don't want to jinx it or <laughs> anything like that. But, but um, you know, we also we're still working on having a screening in Papua New Guinea. Uh, one in Afghanistan, and we want to have one in Haiti. Yeah. Um, we feel it's really important that um, you know it's not just about these communities to show you know the the um, industrialized world, um, you know academia, but we want people in the community to to see this shared experience that their you know their experience is is something that's happening elsewhere, um, and hopefully that can can provide something whether it's you know knowing that their that their struggle and their fight is important and it's and they're not alone in it um and also you know it's it's about giving back as little as we can um you know i think it's very brave of anyone to let a stranger into their life uh and and let them uh document and follow them around and we you know we tried our best to be as respectful and let people tell their stories, mm. um, which, you know, that's, a, that's something I wanted to add earlier, but I forgot, um, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, uh, another thing I teach my students uh, when you were talking about um, how do you protect yourself against fake news, there's a lot of people out there who just feel burned by journalism. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, people come in, get what they need and leave, and there's little respect shown. So that's something that was on Anthony and my mind through this entire process. Um, we worked with really great people in each country. You know, there are field producers. Um, they were as integral as to the film's success um, as, um, you know, as really valuable members of our team. Um, and so that's part of um, wanting to go back to each country and, and try and have at least one screening. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like it, you know a lot of it is to do with respect and and respect for the source and respect for the people, and that's that's a good thing. Like you to to understand who your whose story you're telling and and respect whose story you're telling as well, um, which sounds like it should just be a basic thing. But yeah, as you're saying, like I do think that uh, a lot of people are burnt by journalism in some regards, whether they're they're the subject or just because of the general malaise. Uh, yeah. at the moment yeah it's unfortunate <laughs> to say yeah. the least yeah um well i have usually uh, one last question which i usually ask everybody but um before i do ask that is there anything else you okay. want to mention about uh the film that i haven't asked or that you've been itching to kind of say about the film um i mean let's see um you know we we we're going to continue our impact screenings, you know, and, um, you know, sort of shameless plug. We have, our, um, you know, we have our website and there's, there's a way if anybody is interested in seeing the film and it's not currently scheduled to come to your town, um, you can reach out to us. Um, and in Australia, there are community screenings that can be organized through, um, through the website as well, which is through a third party. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you pick a theater and, you know, they sell X number of tickets and then the screening will happen. So it's really like crowdfunding. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of a, a lot of something else I need to mention is, um, you know, Anthony um, is in Australia and we had, uh, you know, really fantastic filmmakers um, from Media Stockade as our co-producers, uh, and they make great documentaries. Um, they have one out now called China Love, 
Um, the opposition, which was about Papua New Guinea, came out a couple of years ago by Holly Pfeiffer. Um, and they just make really solid films that, um, you know, Auntie and I, and I felt very comfortable um, par- partnering up with them. And we've just been thrilled with all the, the, the work that they brought to the film and, and helping us getting it out to the world. That's great. Um, so that's sort of my shameless plug no, part there and stuff that I did. Not, not talk shameless about, really at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what this is about. This is about, you know, giving your film the spotlight and giving it a chance to, to shine and, and that's why I enjoy doing these interviews is because, you know, I, I get to talk to people who, you know, I would rarely get to talk to and also get to, you know, hear stories that I rarely get to see and hear and that's the value of a festival like the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. They do a really good job of showcasing a lot of different films. And as you said, there's you know over 200 films there, and uh, you know it's it's great. It's really really good. Yeah. So this will, you know, this interview will help bump you up the top of the pile at least, which is really good. And that's the main thing. Uh, <laughs> well, that sounds great to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the last question, which I ask, is. Uh, you know, I try and uh, adjust this to, to, to the people who I'm interviewing. And so the question would be, uh, is there a particular documentary that you really enjoy that you wish that more people would see? It doesn't have to be, you know, anything special or anything like that, but something that you really like that you want more people to seek out. Um, yeah, I think, you know, this is... This is uh, I think very reflective of my taste uh, in documentary filmmaking, and it's not what I do, but I would I, I hope that I can grow more in this direction. I think that more people need to know about and watch Frederick Weissman. Um, he's been making films since the you know uh, mid to late '60s, uh, and he's still making them today. Uh, Verite style, and he he concentrates on institutions. Um, and if I, his most famous film was called Titty Hut Follies, which is about uh, an insane asylum in Western Massachusetts, and he had like unlimited access to it, and it's very jarring. Um, and it was banned for a long time, um, and it really changed how journalists would get access to medical facilities. And this is the mid to late sixties. Mm. Um, so that's his most famous film. Uh, he had in Jackson Heights, which came, came out a couple of years ago, and it was sort of there was a little talk about you know an Oscar nomination maybe. But the film that I like most, and I think um, documentary filmmakers and almost you know anybody who's interested in documentary film should see. It's called High School. Um, and it looks at a, a suburban high school uh, in Philadelphia, and uh, from like 1968, I believe. And it's just uh, a, a film of, of beauty. And uh, and what I mean, it's not because of the cinematography; it's the form, it's the structure, it's the sort of care and time that that I can see in the film. Um, and it, it also captures a moment in time when everything is changing in the United States and across the globe, and you can kind of see that in the film. Um, but it's called High School by Frederick Weissman. Yeah, well, that's a good choice. I, I do like his work, and it's, it is really interesting, that's for sure. Especially, you know, uh, so I live in Perth, Western Australia, which is, you know, considered one of the most isolated cities in the world just because it's <laughs> far away from everything else. Yeah. So, 
that's one of the things I love about documentaries is that I get to look at a different slice of the world that I wouldn't mm. usually get to see from here. So yeah. it's it's really nice. And, you know, his, his films are really, really interesting because, you know, I guess from my perspective, we get to see some of America, you know, through, you know, fictional films and stuff like that and certain documentaries, but we rarely get to see the slice of America that he shows. And yeah. I really appreciate that and enjoy uh, getting to know America in a completely different perspective. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he captures the raw and gritty, unvarnished look of it. And I think that's, yeah. Yeah. That's part of, part of my attraction to it. It's just like, yeah, that's, you know, my mom graduated from high school in 1968 and she's from Pennsylvania. So I just, like, I watch it and I'm like, wow, that's what my mom, you know, it was my mom's experience right there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's got, yeah. yeah, yeah. so I'm glad you're familiar with him. Did you ever see High School? I haven't yet, no, no. Mm. Uh, so I'll definitely need to seek it out. I think um, there's a service which I think you guys have in the U.S. as well called Canopy, uh, which yeah. is to s- associated with um, libraries and stuff like that, so mm-hmm. it's free to use. Um, yeah. And I know that some of his ones in Australia at least are available through there, so I'll have to have a look and see if uh, if that one's available through Canopy because... Yeah, you know, distri- yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we have it, and supposedly his whole catalog is on Canopy now. Yeah, but not at Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, what's going on? <laughs> That's really frustrating, but it's also yeah, it's also good at least that it's available out there for somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for more people. I think I just got to get a city library card, and I could probably have access then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, uh, what, what, um, what's your favorite documentary um, my that you favorite would tell docu- people to see? Uh, my favorite documentary is a documentary called Control Room uh, from oh, yeah. early 2000s, um, mm-hmm. which is about partially about Al Jazeera and it's about media. and uh, it's about, Yeah, yeah I, I absolutely love that documentary. I've, I've watched it probably more times than I really should do. Um, but uh, I think it's a great film, really, really fantastic film. Yeah. We have a, you know, IFC, uh, they, we have a IFC film, uh, a, you know, movie theater here. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the theater, the, the, the director of Doc NYC um, and other documentary film festivals, he, he has a series which is called Stranger Than Fiction. Right. Um, so we got, we got passes over the winter for all of our students. So it's, it's every Tuesday night, they show a documentary. They're the filmmaker, and they talk to, talk to you know, the Q&A afterwards. And then you go to the bar, and you can have, like, drinks and more discussion. So Control Room was uh, – they they uh, showed Control Room this year because it's the, what, 10th anniversary or – Yeah, 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 they're about um, – yeah. Or, or and, 15th or something like that. Yeah, it's been around for a while, yeah. And um, so the – oh, my God, I can't forget his – I can't remember his name right now, but the, you know, the military PR guy? Yes, yep. So I never made the connection, but he started fault lines for Al Jazeera English. Right. Okay. That's the same guy. Wow. Because <laughs> I saw him in the audience. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. He's here. And then watched the film. And then he got up and went to the stage. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I never made that connection. And I just watched this film. And he's sitting right there. Um, but, yeah, that it made him get into journalism. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, I love that film too. Yeah, it's it, it's something which you know I I watched like at a, probably at a pretty pivotal point for me where I was a mm. bit like 
you know, getting a little bit cynical about the world and stuff like that and um, getting a little bit cynical about the, the kind of uh, one-track media because, you know, we've only got one newspaper in Perth and uh, at the oh, point, wow. yeah, and at the point we only had um, kind of one perspective on, on the uh, TV news and stuff like that. So I was completely ignorant to the world of Al Jazeera and the world of international media. And then I watched that documentary and I was like, oh, wow, there is a whole different world out there. And, and that, that probably says more about me than the documentary, but it's more just a case of like, I, I was fascinated and, and I learned so much and I ended up going down a whole rabbit hole from it. And yeah, I, I absolutely yeah. love it. And, you know, it's even if you take away the whole uh, journalist aspect of it, it's just a really, really fascinating, uh, engaging tense story and yeah yeah it's really good <laughs> you know one thing i had no idea so the 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 two women who made the film they um they they just had a hunch that there was going to be a story so they bought a whole bunch of tape they got their cameras they bought tickets they flew um they flew to what saudi arabia is that where they were yeah 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 um and they got in, and they shot that in two weeks. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And they just happened to get paired up, you know, because he was sort of, because he, and that's what he was talking about. He was open-minded about other cultures and learning Arabic. So they were like, he was the young guy, low in the totem pole sort of thing. Um, so they were just like, yeah, you take Al Jazeera because nobody else wanted to deal with him. Um, so it was just this confluence of, like, happy coincidences that they got this amazing story and they got it in two weeks that's nuts <laughs> it, it feels it feels like much much longer than two weeks yeah and yeah i i think that's probably a good point is that you know maybe when you're making like if you if you're looking to tell a story sometimes you just luck upon a story that nobody else wants to tell or nobody else has thought to tell and yeah yeah i think that's that's true for your story and i i think it's true for control room as well yeah. yeah, you make 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 do with what you have, and and um, yeah, definitely try and be creative and, and think outside the box because it's it's a tough industry. Yeah, yeah, I mean. without a doubt. Well, so <laughs> I I really appreciate your time. It's it's been a fantastic well, discussion. So that was director Thor Neuriter talking about his documentary, Disaster Capitalism, which is screening on the 7th of July at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Head over to mdff.org.au slash films slash disaster dash capitalism to find out a lot more and purchase a ticket as well. Really, really worthwhile seeking this one out. So thanks again for listening to another interview and another episode of Not A Knife. It is really fantastic that you guys download and listen to these things and I really enjoy the feedback that I get from you guys. If you do want to send me a message or send me a feedback or a suggestion of something to cover on the show, then hit me up at thecurbau at gmail.com. Alternatively, follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at thecurbau. And our website is now live. On the 1st of July, it went live, and it's been a great reception to it. Have a new logo. We have everything. We've got articles. We have things on there. 
In fact, there's a whole list of uh, particular films that I highly recommend seeing at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival on the website. What's the website? It is thecurb.com.au. Once again, head over to the Oscast Network and listen to other shows and, you know, support great Australian podcasts. One other way that you can support Great Australian Podcasts just like this one is go to patreon.com forward slash thecurbau and throw a dollar behind the show. It just helps us uh, keep on going and making sure that we're able to produce really interesting, varied content for you guys. So thank you again for listening. Check out Disaster Capitalism. Check out other films at the Melbourne Document- Documentary Film Festival. And I'll see you on the next episode of Not a Knife. I see you've played knifey spoony before. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to oscastnetwork.com for details.